Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mumbrella listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. And I'm Hannah Blackiston. Joining us to break down the week in media marketing is Brittany Rigby. Hello. Zoe Wilkinson. Hello. And Damien Francis. Hello. Later in the Mumbrella cast, I'll be talking to the host of SCA's The Briefing, Tom Tilly, about the differences between radio and podcasting. And therefore it has this sense that it's more real rather than um, manufactured, like, you know, big radio shows. Creating an inclusive audience. I want this one to be broadly accessible, so we try and take everyone for the ride. And what makes the briefing different? We're, we're giving you all the value of a great breakfast news show without all the bits in between that you don't need. But first, the week's topics. Facebook threatens to turn off news in Australia. Is P-O-O-D-O-A. Daryl Lee goes after Cadbury's drumming gorilla. And the advertising recession deepens. Only one place to start this week, and that is the Facebook apocalypse. Hannah. Yes, it is the only place to start this week. It feels like it's the only thing we've been talking about for a couple of days now. Um, So earlier this week, Facebook threatened basically to remove Australians' access to news via its platform. So this decision would mean that consumers were not able to share Australian or international news content from any publisher across uh, both Facebook and Instagram. Facebook went on to say that this wouldn't impact the way you share content between family and friends and also that it wouldn't impact anybody outside of Australia. Um, Obviously, this wasn't well received. People did not love that uh, level of policing. I think the ACCC for most of all came in pretty swiftly and said, especially during a global pandemic, this is not an ideal uh, choice for Facebook to make. It's worth noting that Facebook's post was pretty, it very directly linked to the news media bargaining code um, and essentially said, should the news media bargaining code go ahead, this is how we will respond. So there was no, there was no confusion in what the purpose of the message was. Um, and yeah, I think it's pretty pretty easy to say that the industry across the board has been unhappy with Facebook's decision in this time. So I suppose first question, Britt, um, do we think they're bluffing? Look, I think that's the big question and I don't know if it's one I have an answer to because I think there's a there's a very compelling argument on both sides, right? Facebook without news is not as attractive a product for its users and for advertisers. But then on the other hand, if Facebook caves, for want of a better term, you know, they're setting a precedent that globally they're happy to kind of enter into these arrangements in other markets. And I, I don't think that that's the precedent they want to be setting at all. And it it's a tricky one because I just feel more and more like we're not getting anywhere with this. Originally when, you know, the ACCC and the news publishers were talking about making Facebook and Google pay for news, I think it was Hugh Marks, Nine CEO, who said earlier in the year, we should have a payment hit our bank accounts by the end of June. Now, it's now September. We're still in this horrible, unproductive back and forth that makes for very compelling reading and, you know, watching and commentating, but isn't actually progressing either party closer to what either of them want. 
Ben Shepherd, who is the incoming general manager of media at Thinkabell, posted on LinkedIn about it this week. And he said, what would the media response be if Google and Facebook wanted to charge the local media companies for the traffic they directed to them, charge them for any time they used content from Facebook or Google in their stories? Claiming these were taking the entitled revenue of the platforms. What's next? Harvey Norman asking Amazon for payments. Marriott asking Airbnb for a clip of every house booked. And I think, interestingly, that's that's the kind of view that more and more of the industry is taking, that is there logic to asking Google and Facebook to pay news publishers for having better business models than those news publishers? I don't think anyone's disagreeing that journalism absolutely needs to be funded and absolutely needs to be supported. Is this the right way of going about it? And will we even get a result out of it? I think that's becoming more and more like a no. Well, look, Damien, that's a good point, isn't it? Because the, the, I guess the weakness of the case is where is the logic that they're really paying for a service that they're deriving value from if, in fact, they're sending traffic that way? Um, I sometimes wonder if, if the real issue is that it's not a very fair playing field and we don't tax the global players very well, isn't the answer to change the tax laws? Yeah, that's a really good question, isn't it? I I think we've had the conversation about uh, the tax laws uh, various times uh, in the past as well and everyone seems to keep coming back to the fact that, as it is, uh, allegedly... Google and Facebook uh, don't pay huge amounts of tax. Therefore, could we actually change the tax laws effectively to make that beneficial uh, for the news media? It's questionable depending on what side of the fence you sit on as to whether you believe they're paying the right amount of tax. But before that, I'd even go back to, you know, Facebook and Google, if they're going to kick up a stink and if they were really going to pose some serious opposition to this now is obviously the time the ACCC and Rod Sims have clearly said that this discussion, this negotiation, and we hoped that that Google, Facebook, and the news media would be able to come together and sort it out themselves has been going on for too long. I feel that this is all just part of the the playbook now. Everyone's going to muck in. There's going to be a big argy-bargy about it. And do we come to a resolution in the end? I'm not entirely sure, but I have a feeling this is going to drag out for quite some time and there'll be a lot of back and forth. And to your point before, Britt, there's going to be a fair few people, as we saw today on uh, on Mumbrella as well, and we've seen it over the last uh, few weeks, for a few months really, the amount of differing opinions coming out about this has been quite substantial and I think we're just going to see that uh, grow and grow. So. So many different options, so many different opportunities. Is tax the answer? I'm not entirely sure about that. There was actually a really interesting piece on Crikey, which came out yesterday, written by Bernard Keane. Um, And his point was basically Australian media is upset because Facebook and Google have beaten them at their own game. And that back in the day when the media companies were the really powerful players, it was them that were taking part in this anti-competitive behaviour. The point that Bernard goes on to make is that 
Facebook and Google are able to do it better because they've got more money and they're able to just buy up these companies instead of having to complain to the government to get them taken out of the way. I think that was really interesting just because he drew attention to, you know, News Corp's REA Group and Nine's domain, which has kind of cannibalized any income that the two companies used to get from classifieds. And obviously they've created their own real estate businesses now, but they're also complaining about that money being taken away. So I think there's a lot of debate to be had here. Um, And yeah, I completely agree with both Damien and Brittany. I don't think we're going to see this end anytime soon, especially not now Facebook has come in swinging such a big axe. Hannah, I think you've brought up a really good point there as well in terms of we're seeing a little bit of a sway as well towards the argument that the news media should have done more much earlier on and, and perhaps that ship has sailed We've seen Henry Innes, for example, put up a greater opinion on Umbrella as well that, that says very much the same thing. I lived through this as, uh, a, as an employee of a, a big uh, news media organisation. Check my LinkedIn. It was Fairfax back in the day and seeing all this, uh, all this sort of work uh, on digital um, and arguably the results weren't necessarily there. So... I think we're seeing a a culmination of that now in part and there will be a lot of argument on the other side of the fence against news media about they should have done more earlier, but that ship has well and truly sailed. Next, new blood at the top. Well, we now know who'll be replacing Brendan Cook at O Media. Who is it, Hannah? We do. It is Kathy O'Connor from Nova Entertainment, which I don't know if this was so much a shock announcement. It certainly got us up and moving on Monday morning when it came through. But when you actually sat down to kind of think about it for a little while, it makes a lot of sense. Kathy has obviously been at Nova as the CEO of Nova for 12 years now, which is a very long time to hold a position. Um, She's also one of, I would say, the most respected media owner CEOs in the country. Um, So it wasn't so much a surprise as something that maybe some of us just hadn't considered. Um, I think as well, when you started to look at the connection between Nova and O Media, they're both companies who are going through a bit of a digital revolution in their industries. Obviously, outdoor is facing a lot of problems at the moment, but radio has gone through a similar thing. Um, So after 12 years as the head of Nova, Cathy had this to say about the change. The Nova role has been uh, such a fantastically uh, enjoyable, creative, dynamic role. It's never felt like 12 years of anything every year. It's different and so the opportunity to now move on to lead an equally as dynamic uh, company in O-Media with strong growth prospects and a a wonderful position in a digital uh, future, I I just feel incredibly uh, lucky and I can't wait to get started. So worth noting after that that she will be stepping down from Nova in November, um, but she won't be joining O-Media until 2021 and Brendan Cook won't actually be leaving. He'll be staying on as a consultant for at least the first 12 months. Um, They've left that pretty open, so I guess probably a lot of that will depend on how the pandemic progresses over the next 12 months. Okay, so this is one of those questions that isn't going to make me very popular with people in the outdoor industry, but... um. 
Radio is fun. Outdoor is a bit boring. Look, I know I'm being slightly devil's advocate when I say that, but you do know what I mean. Um, so do you think there will be an adjustment process for her to um, to be doing something a little bit less glamorous? This feels like last week when you asked Brittany about the demise of independent media agencies. Um, I don't know that I would be happy to go on record as the person who says outdoor is not fun. Um, I do... I don't know. I think is this not the kind of thing where people often think, oh, you work in a really fun, glamorous industry, your job must be really fun and glamorous. I'm not sure how glamorous CEO of Nova actually is. But I also think if anyone can kind of bring a bit of pizzazz to outdoor media, it's probably somebody from a radio and entertainment background. So maybe that's a space we should be watching. Plus, O-Media's got, you know, cool youth title junkie. Surely, you know, that surely that's like a string in their bow, a string in their bow versus that of other outdoor companies perhaps. And there's already been rumours swirling about, you know, whether or not Kathy could end up bringing Nova into the O-Media fold. So, look, she could just end up having a cake and eating it too, Tim. Ah, now that's interesting, the rumour you're talking about there. So the idea that so Lachlan Murdoch is the owner, that he might actually sell the radio business to O-Media. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, I think there's already been, you know, industry chit-chat about about that and the play that that would be in terms of making O-Media a much stronger force, not just in the outdoor space but in the overall market. And Cathy O'Connor's exit Nova also creates a vacancy at the top there. Who's filling that, Hannah? It does create a vacancy at the top, um, but Nova didn't have to look very far for someone to replace that. They've put former Chief Commercial Officer Peter Charlton up as the CEO. Peter's been with Nova for eight years, and when I spoke to both Kathy and Peter, they said that this had been a plan long in the making. Um, Kathy apparently has been succession planning for Peter to take over from her for quite a few years at this point. So I don't know that Nova were necessarily expecting to lose Kathy this year, but I do think that they had everything in place to make sure that when she did go, it wasn't going to be a complete disaster for them. Next. Is Seven's new cooking show dead already? Is audio part of your future strategy? Get detailed insights from the industry's brightest minds at Mumbrella Audio Land. Year on year, more brands are tapping into the power of audio to connect with their audiences, build new ones, and ensure their messages are heard. This conference is the one-stop shop for all things audio-related. Lock your e-tickets in for October 13 to hear the latest insights and wisdom from the likes of Eardrum, Mamma Mia, Southern Cross Oz Stereo, Group M, Veritonic, and there's more to be confirmed soon. Go to mumbrella.com.au slash audioland for more information. It's all kicking off over at seven. Let's start with what's already on screen. Uh, Hannah, seven had high hopes. Yeah, Seven has put a lot behind Plate of Origin. If you are a human who exists in the world, it's been hard to escape it over the last couple of weeks. I got to a point where I felt like the advertising for it was just following me around in my day-to-day life. Unfortunately, it didn't necessarily pay off. It premiered to 667,000 Metro viewers. 
it dropped 150 of those the next night and then dropped another 150 the night after that. So it's down around the 400,000 Metro viewers now. Um, I didn't realise, and I'm only realising this now, I know Seven had a lot of trouble with production on this show just because of COVID and everything that was going on. They are only planning to roll out six episodes, which I don't I think when I spoke to James Warburton a couple of weeks ago about Seven's results, he did say this had been one of the shows that had been hit pretty heavily by COVID. But I wonder if now maybe they're quite happy that they've only got six of these to get through. Um Worth mentioning what it's up against. It's currently up against the middle of The Bachelor for 10, which is kind of tracking along at the usual heights The Bachelor reaches, um, and The Block, which is having one of its worst seasons, or at least it's worst since 2015, but is still easily beating Plate of Origin at this point. But I guess the thing about Plate of Origin, although, although it's a fairly short run, expensive you know, the hosts, the ex-MasterChef hosts, etc., um, wouldn't have come cheap. Yeah, for sure. So you're looking at uh, Matt and Gary from MasterChef. Obviously, George Columbaris is not the person people want to touch at the moment. Um, they've joined up with Manu, who was already on Seven's Network as part of My Kitchen Rules. If you want kind of a direct comparison between MasterChef this year and Plate of Origin, Plate of Origin is currently tracking an average of 46% down on what MasterChef did this year. MasterChef, of course, did have a very good year, but you're definitely right. I can remember the conversation when all three judges walked away from MasterChef and it was basically they're so popular in the landscape that they're going to be printing money no matter where they go. So if you work off the theory that Seven booked them very quickly after that, I would hazard a guess they've potentially overpaid for this one. Also, it was meant to come off the back of the Olympics. It was meant to be this great celebration of food and multiculturalism. And, you know, we were all going to be high off the Olympics. That didn't happen either. So Seven has had a lot of bad luck for the show, I think, but I can't imagine they're happy with it. And it will be really interesting to see if it does go ahead next year, which we should know soon because upfronts are coming up, um, whether they'll give it another go and see if with the Olympics they can boost a bit more life into it. Yes, of course, that relies on the Olympics actually happening as well. It um, does. <laughs> seven, um, uh, I guess a bold move this week in snapping up The Voice, which began its life on Nine, of course. Is it a bold move, Hannah? It's a bold move in so much as I'm not sure anyone is convinced it's a good move. I think um, we may all remember last week Hugh Marks threw something into Nine's investor presentation about the voice being a little bit long in the tooth um, and worth, I think he said, worth around $40 million um, or it costs them around that much to create it. It then became really obvious why he'd done that when Seven made this announcement just a couple of days later. Um the vo- the well, here's voices- my question. Do you think they decided to walk away or do you think they were trying to negotiate a lower price at that point and were caught out? I think they decided to walk away, quite frankly, because The Voice had its ninth season this year, didn't pull great numbers, especially I think a lot of channels are now realising, as we kind of touched on just then, next year might not be any better from production. It might be just as hard next year to produce content as it is to produce it this year. In that case, do you really want two international judges connected to a, a format, a studio that you can't really not use because the whole point of the voice is them turning around their chair and doing the whole studio thing. So 
if that format is already not bringing in the dollars it's meant to bring in, it's a bit, you know, it's getting on and you're thinking, well, next year, if we don't have the capacity to create this, is it really worth us paying $40 million for it? Seven have also said they're going to create a much shorter and snappier version of the season, which will cost them less money and also potentially make it a bit more exciting. Um, but yeah, can't say, can't say I've, my hopes are on seven side with that one, unfortunately. Look, obviously they've, you know, they've done, they, they, they've done the reboot of a nine show with Farmer Wants a Wife. Um, they've done the reboot of, well, I guess it was a 10 show and a nine show with uh, Big Brother. So there, there's, there's, there's been a history of it. I suppose the thing for me with The Voice though is this is the show that turned around Nine's fortunes. Nine were in so much trouble and there was no obvious sign how they were going to get out of it until the voice came along. So I just like, there's there's a sort of symbolism to them losing it as well. Yeah. And also, if you remember back to Upfronts last year, Nine was leaning very heavily on them being the winners and them continuing to be the winners. And it was, we've got tried and tested formats that we're going to give you another year of, and they're going to do just as well next year as they do this year. So nine hasn't had to kind of launch, obviously Lego Masters is only two years old, but that just joined their suite of content. So nine hasn't actually had to launch some of those big 730 shows for a little while. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see what they do to fill this spot. Also, with you touching in there on those other shows that Seven has picked up, it's a mixed bag, right? Like Big Brother did okay. Farmer Wants Wife did surprisingly well, and especially across regional audiences. None of them really performed in the demos like Seven wanted to. I know Seven has said that they did, but I would question that. It's quite, I don't know that I necessarily see the voice sitting with those other two shows. I think the other two shows had had a nice big break and they were being reintroduced back to audiences but yeah I guess we'll see you never know I I don't think this could have worked out any better for nine really I mean it feels like if your competitor is kind of taking the dregs of the stuff that you've admitted you don't want the first thing that stood out to me when I read this piece from Hannah because I I wasn't in on the day that it broke was nine's comment which I just thought was so hilarious. So a spokesperson said, unfortunately, due to the age of the show and declining demographic profile, The Voice had become by far the poorest financial performer on our slate. We wish Seven well in their quest to revive yet another Nine show. And so, especially considering James Warburton's been really vocal about doing better in the demographics, for Nine to say, this was at the bottom of our list of stuff in terms of performance. It wasn't doing well in the demographics. You can have it. Best of luck. Um, I thought that was really funny. Well, everyone's making big moves at the moment. Um, Seven wants to be out of the cricket as well, or so it would seem. Do we believe them? Uh, This may sound a little bit familiar to anyone who was around during the NRL negotiations earlier this year. So Seven CEO James Warburton said very loudly this last last week that he was going to walk away from cricket rights, basically said Cricket Australia can't deliver a product in 2020-21 that will stand up to the money that we've given them. It basically echoes what Nine CEO Hugh Marks said when... 
dealing with the NRL where he said the NRL is a complete shambles. Management there is sucking up any money that the NRL has. The whole thing needs to be reviewed. And what that ended up with them was them saving about $30 million a year off their NRL rights. So I'm not sure that I believe that Seven are ready to walk away from the cricket. I think the cricket is in a bit of a tough situation here. Nine have obviously got the NRL and the tennis and they seem pretty happy with their choices. Ten appears to be walking away from sport entirely except for the horse racing. There's not really anyone else left. ABC and SBS aren't going to be able to pay you the money that Seven's been paying you up until this point. So I think from Seven's point of view, the ball is entirely in their court and they can kind of say whatever they want to get these rights down. So I think that's all we're seeing here personally. Next, that gorilla looks familiar. Well, it's 13 years since Fallon London created one of the most famous ads of all time, the Cadbury's drumming gorilla. Now, Australia's Daryl Lee is getting in on the act. Zoe, what have they done? So this week, Daryl Lee made a statement that its products are now 100% palm oil free by making an ad that resembles the drumming gorilla using an orangutan playing the drums to George Michael's Freedom 90 in the jungle. Everything about it sends a very strong message to the consumer and it's exactly the message they want to be sending, which is we're now palm oil free. You should be making a choice to switch to palm oil free products and it's because the production of palm oil is threatening the habitat of orangutans. So for listeners who aren't aware, palm oil is grown in the tropics and the majority of it is grown in islands of Indonesia and Malaysia, I believe. And because it's quite a popular ingredient in most consumer products because of the high yield of the crops and because of its cheap production. So that's created a cycle of deforestation and then replanting palm oil crops and then tearing them all out again and cycling through that and through doing that it's threatened the habitats of the orangutans and this Daryl Lee ad is the result of sending that message. Um, Damien, is it is it creative though? Yeah, look, personal opinion, I wouldn't necessarily say so. Maybe I'm swayed by how excited Zoe got to, about the ad. She just was jumping out of her, her skin about it. I saw it on TV late at night. I think it was on the Lifestyle channel and I messaged it straight away. And I, I said, is that it? Um, I kind of feel that if you're going to do something that's very similar or a copy of something else, do it better because at least then people talk about that and that becomes the the main focus of, of the conversation. I don't necessarily think this was better and I'm still trying to figure out whether this was a, a jab, a direct jab at Cadbury for the potential controversy of their use of of palm oil, which, as I understand it, the the main articles and news about that were around uh, late 2018, early 2019. So quite a long time ago, but I I still haven't quite figured that one out. Zoe? So in digging around uh, for the context of this ad, I learnt that um, a couple of years ago, Zoos Victoria removed all Cadbury products from its stores because of its use of palm oil. I believe that they are now restocked by Zoos Victoria because 
Cadbury uses sustainable palm oil. I I think I actually think this is a challenge to Cadbury, and I also think this is a challenge to the wider FMCG segment. Um, I disagree with Damien. I was excited about this, and then when the ad came out, and when I saw it, I wasn't disappointed. I think I I think it's clever. I mean, what better way to make a statement than make it directly to another brand? Do you remember when everyone was talking about newsjacking? It was the big, cool thing, and ad agencies were all jumping all over this going, we're going to newsjack great big topics and come up with amazing campaigns and storylines. I keep thinking about that and thinking, I think we've missed this newsjacking opportunity by about a year and a half here. It's not quite relevant, um, but maybe that's just <laughs> I haven't been looking at the palm oil news lately. <laughs> Brittany? I'm also kind of torn about it because on one hand we're talking about it, right? And if, you know, it was a traditional chocolate ad, it probably, you know, wouldn't have caused us to to think twice about it. But at the same time, I wonder how effective can it be for your ad to be so tied up in a conversation about Cadbury and for people to not just be thinking Daryl Lee chocolate is great, but to be comparing it directly to Cadbury chocolate, which is such a market leader, it doesn't make me think, you know, wow, I've got to run out and support Daryl Lee rather than Cadbury because Daryl Lee is a more ethical business. It does just make me think of the two of them in the same sentence and in the same context, which I don't know is necessarily going to be effective. Well, Zoe, I mean, we are talking about it, but we're a blog that talks about advertising. Um, do you think the general public are talking about it? Um, I did do a bit of a troll on Twitter when the ad came out and people were talking about it when it came out. There was sort of a mix of views like we have here where it's this is really cool, uh, it's a great challenge to Cadbury and then on the other side of things like this is totally un- unoriginal, which is kind of the conversation we're having as well from like the market po- marketer point of view. I disagree though on both Damo and Brittany's points. Like palm oil hasn't like fallen out of just because it's not in the news anymore doesn't mean it's still not an important issue that needs to be brought to people's attention. And personally, like this ad has made me think about the products that I use that have palm oil in them and whether or not it's, you know, like whether I need to change my purchasing decisions and look into the brands that I'm purchasing from and the ingredients that they're using. I think outside of this debate as well, obviously last year Daryl Lee rolled out its No Worries Jan ad which was a rip off the Yellow Pages ad, um, which I believe it eventually had to cancel um, after Yellow Pages issued it with a cease and desist. Um, So obviously this is a space that Daryl Lee is happy playing in and wants to play in further. Whether that's effective or not, I'm not sure. But I think it is quite interesting saying that that's going to be your advertising style, right? Like your advertising style is that you just, you know, take punts at other people's ideas well it does seem to be attack ad season obviously we've got daryl lee going after cadbury's um zoe optus have been going after telstra's price rises of late 
Yes, so Telstra announced at the end of June that it would be raising its postpaid mobile plans by $5 a month um, with the addition of extra data because of people working from home and relying on their data a lot more. Optus responded to that in a print ad that's been running for several weeks saying that it will basically welcome Telstra's consumers with open arms to its business because its plans are staying at the same price until the end of 2020 and uh, that there's no lock-ins and that Telstra consumers deserve better. Britt, do you think it works when brands start attacking each other? Does does it actually make the public switch or does everyone just get dragged down into the mud, do you think? Yeah, this one made me, and I guess this whole conversation makes me think as well of the Vegemite versus Marmite kind of back and forth that we had not too long ago. And while it's good, I think, for generating a bit of conversation, maybe a bit of media attention, I don't know if it's actually effective in in making people switch. Something like changing phone plans is just such an administrative, annoying, you know, thing that you you put off doing. It's why, you know, you have insurance that you don't need and have subscriptions that you never use because cancelling or changing is just too much of a bother. I don't know if this, I mean, look, I don't want to say that it's not going to, but I would say that I would challenge Optus to prove that following this, they do get a spike in Telstra customers making the switch. Next, the advertising recession continues. Um, SMI, the numbers come out once a month, generally about a, a month in arrears. So we now know what the advertising market was doing in July, which wasn't very good. It wasn't very good, but what else did we expect? It was slightly better than June. So July sat at 28.4%. Uh, that's a decline, obviously. June had a 35.7% slide and then May was right up at 40%. So look, the the message we've been hearing from SMI every month didn't change, which is things are looking better. You know, we're optimistic, future bookings are showing signs of improvement and signs of life. And it feels like maybe that's more true than it previously has been at the moment. Chatting to other people in market, you know, media agency, bosses are similarly optimistic I suppose you know they also have have reason to take that view but are saying that clients are seeming to spend a little bit more and that things are you know progressing perhaps a bit quicker than they have up until now off the back of COVID so yeah look not a great month but I don't think we're going to see a good month for a long time yet. And where was it worse in July? Look, again, no surprises, but cinema was a number that really caught my attention. I mean, we know that cinema has been hit extremely hard, but compared to July last year, back 96.2%, a complete wipeout, So, and even worse than June. So that was one that really stood out. Outdoor, still back 65. Well, look, just before on cinema, it's worth making the point. I think it's been slow to come back as well, even now I – I, I went to Tenet at the weekend and I was really interested to see what would be advertising against it. 
hardly any ads at all. Yeah. You know, the advertisers hadn't come in to support it. Yeah, I went to the cinemas for the first time, you know, since all of this began, probably about a month and a half ago at this point, quite early on. And it was just the local cinema showing Ghostbusters. There was kind of nothing new to show. And the ads were either for movies that were supposed to have already been, you know, released and hadn't been. But in terms of advertising, the same stuff that we'd been seeing back in January and February. So, yeah, same same experience. And, you know, outdoor still doing, you know, really terribly, really struggling magazines, you know, back 59.7%, the the quote-unquote bright spots were telling because they're not really bright spots. You know, regional radio specifically, not radio but regional radio, was still down 11.6% and that was being seen as a bit of a success story. Social media was back 13.8% and video sites were down, you know, almost 14% and they were considered kind of the best of, of a bad bunch. So, yeah, it's it's still a very difficult market and I don't see it easing up anytime soon. Next, Hannah talks to Tom Tilly. I am joined today by Tom Tilly, host of Podcast One's The Briefing Podcast, which recently celebrated its 100th episode. Thank you for joining me today, Tom. Hey, great to be with you. Um, So first up, congratulations on 100 episodes. That's a very exciting milestone to hit. Um, You obviously came to this job from a background of working in radio um, and you've worked in TV before as well. How did you find moving into a podcast first product? Yeah, it's been really interesting because at um, Hack at Triple J, I was sort of um, dabbling in both spaces. It was mostly a radio show, but we're also putting the radio show out as a podcast and trying to adapt it for the podcast audience. But it's really different to going fully digital first and really thinking specifically about the way um, the context and, and the value um, people will get from your offering. So the fun part was starting from scratch, really. So um, Southern Cross Osterio and Podcast One have put some amazing people on this project. Um, so it started um, with a conversation between myself and Sam Kavanagh, who you know helped create uh, Hamish and Andy. And we sort of started throwing around ideas and seeing what was working um, on some other um, daily news podcasts and thought about what we could offer that could um, add value in that space. And so, yeah, that's, that's where we started. And we, um, we started looking at how we would do the sort of deep dive topics uh, and then thought it would be important to give the listener a snapshot of what else was going uh, what else was happening that day uh, and that that part of it actually really evolved the headlines and that's what our podcast does differently to a lot of others in the daily news space is that um, headlines first half of the show and we develop those co-host relationships and the way we write and produce those headlines to make them more and more dynamic as those first few weeks of the podcast started um, so, yeah, now I'm quite happy with the way it's sounding now, but we're still adapting as we go and watching closely 
the listening habits of our audience and the feedback and continuing to try and improve it and tweak it. Yeah, because you launched the briefing in April and it's kind of quite crazy that you've already hit 100 episodes, but I guess that's the beauty of a daily podcast. But also it's been a completely wild news cycle since then. How has that been kind of dealing with a completely new product but also in this kind of news cycle? Yeah, it feels like it's been a blur. Um, (laughs) You know, we're in the first week of spring now and it feels like we're finally putting our heads up and going, oh, you know, here we are. This is this is what we've done. So yeah, it was nice to hit the hundredth episode. Um, look, it's been an awesome time to be working on a daily news podcast. Uh, as much as we think we're sick of talking about the pandemic, it's extremely fascinating. Like, what a phenomenon! And it's kicks and turns and twists. I mean, who would have thought Melbourne would be in lockdown in September? Um, and you know, shout out if you're listening from Melbourne. Such a such a tough time and 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 so unfair really that you guys are having to live under lockdown now while the rest of us are sort of getting out and about but it's been a fascinating time to to follow the news to try and lead the news um, to try and add genuine practical value to people's lives like people actually need to hear the news at the moment I think that's why you've seen um, a massive increase in consumption as well so I think it's a really good time to to do a podcast like this and we're seeing that in the growth of of the listenership. Yeah, there's been a really good response, I think, to podcasting kind of in the news landscape, even though it's fairly new, I suppose, especially in Australia. What role do you think podcasting plays in the way people consume news? Well, I think the role's changing and I think it was uh, about entertainment and providing content for niche groups that weren't reached by mainstream broadcasters who are always trying to capture the middle. Um, But I think as the podcast audience grows um, and becomes bigger and broader, there's a greater role to offer similar values that traditional media has offered. And that's the sort of space where crossing over into we're we're doing something very similar to what a news-driven breakfast radio show would offer we're we're giving you all the value of a great breakfast news show without all the bits in between that you don't need without all the bits that you can find um, with a couple of clicks on your phone already in the digital age you know we don't need to do the weather or the traffic I mean there's not much traffic at the moment but (laughs) these, these are things that aren't really necessary anymore because you can you can get them so easily via other apps. So we've trimmed down what a breakfast news show would do into its most fundamental vital parts and, and just put that in one podcast. So we're we're doing what traditional breakfast would do, but we're doing it with a digital audience in mind who consume it how and when they want. And if you think about podcasting, it's quite often pitched at being something that young people are into you know especially as you were saying when it started and it was those kind of niche audiences it was quite skewing towards quite a young demographic and I think it's really interesting now that we're seeing more news podcasts pop up because young people cop a lot of flack for not necessarily consuming news in the right way in the way that other people think they should be do you think now that podcasting is really taking off in the news space we're going to see 
Is that where we're going to see this engagement with kind of younger demographics, do you think? Um, I think, yeah, podcasting will be be um, one of the, the mediums that will reach young people. But I think, you know, the sort of fallacy you're talking about of young people not being engaged is just looking so out, outdated. Like we live in the information age and young people are more connected than ever just because they um, aren't reading long-form newspaper pieces on the weekend, um, you know, around the house and getting it delivered to their front doorstep. It doesn't mean they're not consuming news. Um, and, yeah, I think I think podcasts will be a, a good part of the new way people consume news. Um, I was just reading a survey um, that came out from uh, media monitors in the US just a week ago. Um, it wasn't the biggest sample. It was about 1,000 people, but they found that more and more people are seeing podcasts as more trustworthy than traditional media sources. I mean, the reality is a lot of podcasts are being made by traditional media sources, so there's a crossover there. But I think there's a level of, of trust um, that, that builds up through the personal connection you have through following a podcast host. And I think, um, yeah, it also cuts through the noise of social media. And, you know, that's where so many young people consume a lot of information and misinformation and that's something else that we're trying to you know um, nail with our podcasts is to give people a, a trusted familiar source so they don't have to spend all their time on the scroll of doom you know just on facebook or twitter or, or with the news sources on on instagram or other other platforms where you just end up just scrolling and losing your mind and not knowing what's true and who posted what and where's it come from. If you have a, a trusted, you know, hosts and co-hosts and a trusted source for a journalist that's delivered in a simple, concise way, then hopefully it cuts through the misinformation. Why do you think that is that people create those relationships with podcasts and with podcast hosts? Because I totally relate to that. I more have been a massive podcast listener for a very long time now. And you do feel this connection to podcasts that you don't necessarily get with other media sources. Yeah, there's probably lots of reasons. Two that come to mind for me is, one, it's the very simple thing that you have them in your ears. You are listening on headphones, and that's one of the big differences with radio. Um, it's, it's so obvious, but like most people listening to radio in their cars, most people are listening to podcasts through their headphones. That is a completely different physiological experience, and it is way more intimate. So that's part of the reason why you feel closer to those podcast hosts. And then I think it's the the culture of podcast making, which has been a little bit more stripped back, um, come from a little bit more of a of an amateur, authentic kind of background, um, and therefore it has this sense that it's more real rather than um, manufactured, like you know big radio shows. So, yeah, you've got someone um, speaking more directly to you and speaking to you right in that intimate space of your headphones. Let's kind of widen out a little bit more now. Obviously, you've just spent several months looking at daily news reporting. What is your opinion of the current 
news reporting landscape in Australia? You mean the whole thing? The whole thing. <laughs> I think we're going top line. Um, well, um, it's a very interesting time across all of the media at the moment for two reasons. Um, the pandemic is the best story in decades, um, but that same force has also undermined um, the revenue structure for so many outlets. So, you know, traditional TV, radio, print are, are doing some amazing work with less and firing tons of people in the process. And, you know, similar factors are applying at the ABC because of um, the budget issues there. And, and, you know, they've sadly had to let go lots of staff, which is, which is pretty hard to watch as well. So that's sort of the, the climate. Um, it's been really interesting to watch um, Nine make some big moves in buying the Herald and, and the Age and the Fairfax businesses. Um, and it's good to see those, those papers looking pretty strong because they've gone through significant cuts over the years as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I won't go through all of them, but they're all facing their challenges and trying to do the best thing they can. And it's it's great to see when in the face of those challenges, companies still have the, the conviction to invest in things that they know will grow, um, which is what I'm, I'm quite impressed with SCA about where I'm working on the podcast with um, that they are really going hard on their digital strategy even when their traditional business model is going through a challenging time. So um, other players are doing that too, you know, like um, News Corp and the other big podcasters are, are really seeing the opportunity. And so while some of the, the things that we're losing from our traditional journalism platforms, like big investigations, for example, um, can happen in the podcast space, um, you know, look at Headley Thomas, for example. Yeah, definitely. What do you what do you admire most in some of the other podcasts that are around? Like if you kind of think about some of your favorite podcast titles, what is it that you try and emulate in your own podcasting? Mm. Well, I've been I've been listening to the the best of the American podcasts for over 10 years, you know, the obvious ones like um This American Life and um Radio Lab. Um, so I actually went over to New York a few years back and um, met Ira Glass and sat in on one of their um, script writing sessions to learn about what makes their podcast really unique. And he, he was awesome. Um, I was on a panel with a couple of their reporters, um, Brian Reed and Mickey Meek um, here in Australia. And they said, oh, whenever you come to New York, drop in, say hi, we'll introduce you to a few people. And that's an awesome thing about um, Americans and New Yorkers in particular. The pond is so big, it's never like a threat or anything that they, they like meeting people in the same field. So, um, yeah, I met Alex Bloomberg who started Gimlet at a, at a bar having drinks and, um, yeah, Mickey and Brian took me into the office at This American Life and they said, look, the, the best thing you can do to sort of learn about what we do is to just sit in on a writing or an edit session. And so what, what I learned about their process is 
how much work just goes into the the writing, like how much brain power and experience um, goes into choosing every word that goes into one of those podcasts. And, you know, you hear about the big American TV talk shows having these huge writer's rooms, which is what what makes their jokes so strong and, and their content so powerful, even though it looks so relaxed. And there's a similar approach to, to podcasting there where they just put tons and tons of resource into making those words really land and getting their t- storytelling really, really straight. So we, we don't have that kind of resource for a daily turnaround, um, but I'm, I've tried to sort of learn more about the way they write and the way they bring the listener along. Radio Lab has that interesting sort of co-hosted scripted style, which um, we've borrowed quite a bit um, or learned from quite a bit, you know, you could say, um, with the way we're sort of producing the briefing, we're bouncing through our news um, headlines together and trying to audio and, and bouncing from script to conversational in a sort of hopefully seamless way. Uh, and then we're thinking hard about how we treat the deep dive topics at the back end. Um, and I think other podcasts have been learning from those original ones as well. So, you know, certainly there's that um, East Coast American style that you you know as soon as you hear it. And the New York Times daily podcast is borrowing from a lot of that as well, but also sort of leaning back to a more simple single host um NPR radio style as well. So they're sort of blending the best of some of the, the scripting and, and treatment cultures. Um, and, and so are we, but also just borrowing from like what works really well in, in all forms of audio, which is great storytelling, succinct scripting, um, clever use of audio and a good, honest, authentic, but vibrant delivery, hopefully. <laughs> do you get um do you get a lot of feedback from your listeners? Do people reach out to you and tell you that they're loving or not loving parts of the podcast? Look, um I used to be hosting a live show where I would get 600 <laughs> SMSs in half an hour um and tons of social media feedback. So, we're building our audience um you know, we built it from nothing and it's already growing really really fast. Um and so we get some feedback. We see the, the ratings come through. Um, our social team is growing Instagram and we're getting a really good engagement there. So we're finding out what people are interested in, the sort of questions they want to ask. Um, but, yeah, just starting to get a sense of what what's working for our audience, um, but not on the scale that you can do on a live radio show. Yeah. Um, and you've covered quite a lot of topics and spoken to some pretty interesting people over 100 episodes. Is there one that sticks out in your mind as either a favourite or just one that you kind of haven't stopped thinking about? One of our um, best rating ones was um, on the whole Karen phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And um, that was quite a standout. Um, we spoke to... Um, this amazing um, black cultural analyst who took us back decades into the way these kind of words were used in the or names were used in the black community to describe 
different people in the kind of power structure that they felt oppressed by. Um, and so we learned so much about that. Um, and that was really fascinating. Um, anytime we touch on the sort of conspiracy theories gets quite interesting. Um, obviously the, the 5G coronavirus stuff really resonated. Um, as we tried to, I guess, deal with those questions in a way that wasn't alienating to people who aren't sure about those issues, but also just get the, get the best voices on those topics so we actually understand the science around those concerns. Um, and that's part of the way I always try and do stories or, or content is to, to make sure no one's excluded because they hold a certain viewpoint. Um, you know, some podcasts can build a big audience because they aim for a certain um, cultural set or, or political ideology. Um, I want this one to be broadly accessible. So we try and take everyone for the ride. And so, yeah, 5G was interesting to try and just bring the science to people that, you know, for whatever reason feel really concerned about those kind of topics. Um, the other standouts are when we've been able to get really big names. Um, we've had um, Julie Bishop on the show. Um, we've had Kevin Rudd, um, Julia Gillard. We've had several ministers, um, including the education minister and the health minister already. I wasn't sure if we'd be able to attract them to a podcast, but the, the ministers are keen to talk to us. Um, partly that's because we've got Annika Smethurst, who has really good contacts in Canberra. Um, yeah, so yeah, there's, there's been quite a lot of standouts already in the first hundred, and we're just getting started. I think that's amazing as well. It's considering it wasn't that long ago that Australians weren't really investing in podcasting at all. It's quite incredible that we've already got to a point where people of that caliber are willing to come on a show and chat with you. Yeah, it's great, and then we can sort of put put the audience concerns directly to those people who actually have power. Yeah, definitely. So 100 episodes, Darren, what have you got planned for the future of the briefing? Ah, good question. Um, we're just continuing just trying to find great stories all the time and, um, you know, full range of stuff from whether it's um, – explaining the big stories that are already in the news or trying to um, break big stories of our own and do do new things. So, look, we're just humming along and trying to refine the process. Awesome. Tom Tilly, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Hannah. Thank you. And that's it for this week. But before we go, the first industry MVPs confirmed from Umbrella's Virtual Sports Marketing Summit. Key industry leaders from sporting associations, agencies and research institutes have already been confirmed on the program, from Tennis Australia and Publicist Sport and Entertainment to RMIT University. Plus, there's more to follow very soon. So if sport is part of your brand or client's marketing plan, score your tickets today for as little as $55. Go to mumbrella.com.au slash sports for more information. That's it for this week, though. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Thanks Tim. Thanks, Tim. Tim. Toodle pep.